Hello, and thank you for joining the New Life Baptist Church podcast. It is such a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you through this platform, and it's our desire that you would have an open heart to receive what the Lord has for you through this message. If you'd like to contact us, please visit our website at newlifecasagrande.com. There you'll find contact information to reach us directly, or if you're local to the Casa Grande area, you'll find information to plan your first visit. If you benefit from this sermon, please share it with a friend or feel free to leave a review. Now, let's get ready to hear what God has for us today. Today we're going to be continuing our study in the book of the Revelation. If you haven't been with us, maybe this is your first time visiting, uh, we've been going through the first couple chapters of the book of Revelation, very, very last book in the Bible. It is a book of prophecy, uh, especially at the time that it was written. Some of the events that are written, at, written about in the beginning have already transpired. We recognize that we've been studying that for the last couple of weeks. So if you weren't here for that, feel free to go back and watch those. You can find those on YouTube. Uh, those are available there for you to get caught up to where, to where we are today. But we recognize that the first few chapters of the book of Revelation are beginning to reveal what is going to be taking place in the era of the church. And as we've been studying, we've been looking at them uh, based off of those individual churches, which we believe represent specific eras of church history, of, of human history as well. But since the church has been here, that's what we've been looking at. So the first church was Ephesus. It was the church of the apostles. This was the church that had lost its first love, if you remember that statement. And we believe that that represents about 30 to 100 AD. So just after Christ died, passed on the scene and went up to heaven, and he told the disciples, it's go time. It's time to start the church. Time to get busy. And that's what they did. They went, they started the church. This is the church of Ephesus. And they launched the church. They did a very effective job at that, but they began to lose their first love. In other words, why they were doing it began to get muddied up a little bit. They had to go back to the real reason that they were doing what they were doing. The second church was the church at Smyrna. This was the persecuted church. Remember that word Smyrna means crushed, squeezed out. That's what was happening to the church. And the church was spreading because of all of the events that were going on as far as persecution was concerned. The Roman Empire wanted to stamp out Christianity entirely. The Jews did too. The Jews were the ones who actually started this. They felt like this whole Christian thing had been an offshoot of Judaism. Therefore, it was their responsibility to stamp it out. They didn't recognize that what Christ did was actually the fulfillment of Judaism, and it didn't need to exist as it was anymore. So because of that, persecution came on the early church hard, fast, heavy, and they were very, very, very much in a difficult time frame there at the church of Pergamos. That leads us to what we studied last week. Sorry, that's the church of Pergamos. The church of Smyrna was the crushed church. Last week, we studied the church at Pergamos. That was the worldly church. The word Pergamos actually means married. It's as if they had married the culture, and they had not yet begun to allow false doctrine to uh, change their doctrine. Like They weren't getting rid of doctrine, but they were allowing new doctrine in. False teaching was coming in in droves. And they were allowing it. They were letting it remain. That's what was happening during the church of Pergamos during that era, which we believe is 300 to 500 AD as well. Now, today, we're going to continue in Revelation chapter 2. Look at verse 18. We'll be there in just a moment. We're going to study the church of Thyatira. The church of Thyatira. 
the compromising church, the church that literally caused the dark ages, the Roman Catholic Church. That's what we're going to be looking at today. So as we get started, I want to make a couple things very clear. Number one, there is no way, literally 0% chance, that we can cover every important detail that took place during this window of time. That's not our purpose today. That's not our goal. Our goal here is simply to take a look at what happened, compare it with what Jesus says in this passage, and recognize what took place that caused him to say what he's going to say. So yes, we're going to look at some historical things. We're going to recognize some of the fallacies that come during this window of time. But our goal isn't to nitpick every single thing that happened during this window. It's to get a, the general concept of what's taking place so that we can understand why the church changed so dramatically during this window of time. Secondly, the Roman Catholic Church is still around today. Um, most of us know people that are in the Roman Catholic Church, came from the Roman Catholic Church. Maybe you yourself were part of the Roman Catholic Church at one point in time. And we recognize there's a lot of people that are here, that are in that window. The, the, the Roman Catholic Church played such a pivotal role in the early European settlements. Think about it. Most of Central and South America were settled by the Spanish, which was heavily Roman Catholic. They brought that influence with them. Everything that they conquered became Roman Catholic. So as that starts making its way northward, Mexico settles most of the American Southwest with Roman Catholic influence because that was the influence that was brought into them. That's why we look around today, around the American Southwest, there's a ton of Roman Catholic influence because that was what was already here. So yes, there, there's a, a great amount of Catholic influence that we see all throughout our local culture. It's everywhere. And there's reasons for that. It's built into the culture, and once again, you probably know people who are in or part of or have been born into the Roman Catholic Church. And today, our goal is not to take our Bibles and thump them over the head and say, well, I've got all the answers. No, I don't. I just know who does. That's all that we're doing today is looking at the answers from God's Word and being able to put ourselves in a position where we can share the truth of God's Word with anyone who does not know it, regardless of their background. Our goal is not to bash people. It's to help people, including ourselves. That's one of the reasons that we're here. So once again, our goal here is to simply show what happened in the past and see why Jesus said what he said about this era in history. So let's look at verse 18, Re Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. So Jesus is clarifying, once again, he's done this with each church. He's clarifying that he is the author. This isn't some guy coming up with something interesting that may or may not happen. He's, he's telling them, this is me speaking. I'm telling you truth. Listen to what I have to say. Some theologians even believe the description here that he's giving is directly combating one of the commonly worshipped sun gods of their day. The description that we see. Uh, basically saying the son of God is the powerful one, not the sun god that you're worshipping. The one who actually has the power is the one who is giving you this message. 
So regard, uh, regarding the age of Thyatira, we believe that it is referring to the era of the Roman Catholic Church for a couple of reasons. We'll see those as we go throughout uh, the sermon today. After the fall of the Roman Empire, the Roman Catholic Church was in a perfect position to take over its authority, and it did for a thousand years. It took over the authority. Just imagine, as the Roman Empire was beginning to wane, other empires were beginning to build uh, the Ottomans off toward Turkey, which is where many of these churches are settled, by the way. All of this is taking place. Political boundaries were beginning to shift. But what had happened because of the church of Pergamos as pastors, now being called priests or now being called father, they were starting to be given political authority in their area, almost like a mayor or a governor of their respective areas. They were becoming politically authoritative rather than just spiritually authoritative. So as the government of the Roman Empire began to crumble, man, the government of the church was strong. Nothing was affecting it. The empire can crumble, but the church could stand strong, which at the beginning was a great thing. Right? The concept made sense. Okay, well, the church, it's a separate entity anyway. So yeah, it can stand firm. It can stand strong. It doesn't matter what other empires fall around it. The church of God can stand. And it did. And then things started to change. Remember, in the church of Pergamos, false doctrine was starting to come in. But they hadn't necessarily started to lose doctrine yet. In this window of time, we see things starting to get lost very, very quickly. The word Catholic, the word Catholic, means universal. It was the universal church. It was the church. That's all that there was. There were no sections of the church. There weren't Baptists and Lutherans and other denominations. There was the church. That was it. A great concept, by the way. That's all that there was, the universal church. But as the universal church began to take over the political authority that surrounded it, there began to come some issues. It upended what the church was known as before and would completely change what the church would be from that point forward. The word Thyatira itself actually means continual sacrifice. Think about that. Continual sacrifice. Something Jesus talks about directly in verse 19, but the concept, continual sacrifice. I remember a time when you had to continually sacrifice to make things right with God. That was the Old Testament. That was the system, the sacrificial system. I sinned, I went to the priest, I offered a sacrifice. The priest offered a sacrifice for me because I wasn't able to do that. He went to God on my behalf, and now I'm good. Oh, but then I sinned again. So then I've got to offer another sacrifice. I've got to go to the priest, he's got to go before God. Oh, and now I'm good again. Oh, but wait, I've sinned again. Like this constant struggle was going on in the Old Testament. They were in a state of continually sacrificing. Then Christ came. He was the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that remained, that was necessary. 500 years past, the church decides, no, I think we're going to go back to the old sacrificial system instead. We're going to continually sacrifice. And we're going to recognize that as we go. Look at verse 19. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. I don't know if you were paying attention, but the last was the same as the first. They were both works. 
Did you catch that? Look at it again. Verse 19, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. It's almost as if Jesus is saying that your works are more important than your works, which are more important than your works, which are more important than your works. It's as if your works were really the only thing that were very important. And I think if we look back at the Roman Catholic Church during this window of time, and even today, we recognize, yeah, works are pretty important to this group of people. What the church becomes, works is absolutely important to them. So Jesus is making a statement that is right on regarding this window of time. Verse 20, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Right? The church was allowing Jezebel, a false teacher, to come in and seduce them into doing something different. So here we are again, the concept of the church being taught or seduced into sin. This combined with the works accusation back in 19 is a very powerful description of the church of Thyatira. So what exactly was the issue going on between 500 to 1500 AD? What's the issue at hand? Do you remember the book of Hosea? It's one of those stories that when you read it, when you study it, chances are you'll never forget it. It's just one that sticks in your head. You can't shake it. You can't let it go. In the book of Hosea, we see Hosea, a prophet, is being used by God in a very unique way. Instead of, like all the other prophets, having a message from God, going before the people and proclaiming the message, God wants Hosea to actually live the message out. So this is what he tells him to do. He tells him to go and marry a harlot. Have children with her. Make, start a family with this person with this woman. Each child that was born had a name that reflected the message that God wanted to share. One of them was, you are no longer my people. One of them is, I am no longer your God. One of them was calling them to repent and come back to him. But God was telling the nation of Israel through the life of Hosea, he was sending a message. Then we see Hosea or his, Hosea's wife, Gomer, she goes back to her former lifestyle. She goes back to her lovers. Even though she started a family, she's living as, as a mother in this family with a prophet. She leaves, she goes back and begins to commit adultery against Hosea. She goes back to her former lifestyle. Now, right then, in Jewish law, Hosea had the right to go and find her, to drag her into the street, divorce her, and stone her to death right then and there. No questions asked. That was it. That was the law. He had the legal right to do that. But God wanted Hosea to do something different. God told Hosea to go and buy her back. Hosea recognized that Gomer had gone so deep into this sin that she had been sold into slavery. So he, as the husband, went to the auction block and literally purchased her. He redeemed her and brought her home. That is the message that God wanted to tell the people of Israel. I will redeem you. I will buy you back. And he did so with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That was the redemption. That was the payment. He bought them back. Now all they have to do is 
come home. Believe it. Take that open hand of salvation and come home to him. That's it. That's all that was required of them. The church began to do exactly what the nation of Israel was doing. They began to commit adultery, spiritually, commit adultery against God. That was the picture of Hosea. You're following after other gods. You're worshiping other gods. That is effectively cheating on God. That's the picture of Hosea. The spiritual adultery in the church of Pergamos is, of course, where we saw it begin, but Thyatira takes it to the next level. And one of the primary places that we see this taking place is through the false authority that was being given to the leadership of the church. False authority that was being invented by the church. In Pergamos, they began to treat church leadership as legal and spiritual authority, giving them names like priest and father, things that were inaccurate completely. We talked about those last week. But then we recognize these teachings continued, giving men authority that was not theirs to have. And it continued on to other biblical characters as well. In AD 431, the title Mother of God was first used introducing the worship of Mary into the church. This set a dangerous precedent that truly marked the beginning of the church at Thyatira. Not only were images of Mary set up in many churches, maybe originally for decoration, but at this point, that, that ship has sailed. We're no longer just looking at some supposed image of Mary, even though we haven't seen her in 500 years. There she is. Now it's more than just, oh, hey, there's a representation of what Mary might have looked like. Now it's Hail Mary. Now it's worshiping Mary. Now it's calling on Mary and praying to her as if she can hear you. That's what is beginning to take place here in the early Roman Catholic Church. So let's take a moment and dive into this one as this, con this, this idea continues. We see later on, closer to the 700s, 800s, the concept of the other apostles and other saints being added into this group of people that somehow we can pray to, and they, they're responsible to, to us somehow, that's being taught. So let's talk about it. Why was this wrong? To start with, we are Christians, little Christs, not little Marys, not little Pauls, not little Martin Luthers, not little Pope John Paul II. We are little Christs. To worship or give authority to anyone other than Christ himself is idolatry. It is the very definition of idolatry. It is spiritual adultery, what Israel was doing to God back in the book of Hosea. Running from God, cheating on God, that's exactly what the church began to do in the walls of worship. In the church, this was happening. In Old Testament times, to pray to dead people was considered necromancy. It was considered witchcraft. They hunted you down and put you to death because you had the power of Satan in you if you think you can communicate with dead people. They found you and they killed you. It was a death sentence. Yet here we are, the church, a millennium later, is teaching that that's what you should be doing. You should be doing this. You should be talking to dead people. Now listen, Mary is dead. Paul is dead. Peter is dead. Yes, they're alive in heaven, but they can't 
we don't have an active means of communication with them. We have one person that we communicate with and through. His name is Jesus Christ. Remember his role we talked about last week? His role established in Hebrews is that he is the high priest. I'm not the priest. Just because I, I have the title pastor does not mean that I am a priest or that I am a father. I am just a messenger of the words that have already been written, the words that have already been given. My role isn't to be your priest. My role isn't for, for me to be the middleman between you and God. That's Jesus's role alone. So now we recognized last week that, that the, the pastor doesn't have the authority. Why on earth am I talking to a dead person? Why on earth am I looking at a statue of someone, probably doesn't even look like who they were, I'm still talking to a statue as if the statue is going to respond to me. It is literal idolatry that was happening and honestly is still being taught today to some extent or another. Idolatry taking place in the church. It was blasphemy. Throughout the entire era of Thyatira, false authority would only increase and keep this church in darkness because of the authority that they were giving to men that did not have the authority from God. The Pope is a title that comes around in 610. It makes its way into the church. It was a title given to originally to the bishop in Rome. They considered out of all of the pastors, this pastor's role was the most important, so we'll make him the pastor. The word Pope comes from the word Papa, Father. So remember, they were already calling themselves fathers anyway. So he's the father. Now the pope in, or the bishop in Rome is the father of fathers. So not only are we stealing the title from God, we're stealing his real title, being the king of kings, the lord of lords, the father of fathers. Now we're going to take that title too. That's what was happening here in the church. 610. The authority that pastors were placing on themselves was truly astronomical. In 709, kissing the Pope's feet became common practice. This was considered an act of worship, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, expressly forbidden, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You can find some references in Acts 10 and Revelation 19. Around 750, the Pope was, listen, he was given the city of Rome, like the city, the place, he was given the city of Rome to rule. It became his. It was his surrounding territory and the city itself that he would become the ruler of. This was given to him by, by King Pepin. He was a king of France after defeating the Lombards in Italy. And it was certainly not in uniformity to what Jesus had taught in Matthew chapter 20. The church was never designed to become a nation, but to be within all nations. In 1300, Pope Boniface III stated, Therefore we declare, state, define, and pronounce that for every creature to be subject to the Roman Pope is altogether necessary for salvation. In other words, if you want to get saved, you got to do what I say. Then they follow up with that in the 1500s. It was decided that the tradition of the church would be held equal with the Bible. Basically, if the Pope said it or the church taught it, it didn't have to be in the Bible. It was tradition. Therefore, God said it. The Pope could get up and say anything that he wanted to, and all of a sudden, that was the words of God that were coming out of his mouth. That's what they taught. Talk about keeping your people in darkness, not letting them find the light. That's what was happening. They were securing their own authority by doing this. Even in the late 1800s, we see the infallibility of the Pope being made official. In other words, I'm without sin. I can't sin. I'm the Pope. It's in, I'm incapable of sin. 
really. I don't know if anyone's watched the news in the last century, but I think it's possible for us to look back and say, yeah, these guys have sinned. If you were to go and actually check any history of the popes from this era, from the 500 to 1,000 to 1,500, especially around the 1,200 range, these guys were not only sinners, they were, I mean, they were devious. They were evil. They were wicked, wicked men that just had authority, that had power. Yet they said, I said it, therefore God said it. What kind of person do you think you are? They, they had built this empire around them. This was no longer about church. This was about government. This is what it became. The church had morphed into a nationality that was being recognized everywhere because it was being led from behind the doors of the church. This changed the image of what the church looks like forever. Today, people still struggle with this concept of Christian being Catholic. Wait, 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 who's actually the Christian here? The world struggles with this concept because of this level of, of micromanagement that was coming from the church. We're not even going to go into detail today on the creation of nuns and monks and other parts of the hierarchies that they had invented along the way. The point is, man took the authority that was rightfully God's and placed it on himself. And it had devastating consequences that are with us to this day. Now, let's continue. We're going to look at some of the false teachings that were introduced in this era of church history as well. So the church of Pergamos began to allow statues and images of supposed biblical characters. We talked about that already. Thyatira took it to the next level. We've already talked about Mary. Uh, but going back a little bit, 8300, Constantine brings Christianity back into uh, legality. You're illegally allowed to be a Christian and not suffer death for being so. But he also brought in the, the cross as the symbol of the Roman Empire. He was beginning to popularize the concept of Christianity. In 788, we see the image of the cross, including images of saints, and even starting to get these relics from somewhere of past biblical events and things that had taken place, supposedly pieces of the, of the Ark of the Covenant and pieces of Noah's Ark and, and things of this nature that were somehow being found and being brought into the church. And people were beginning not just to recognize them, but to worship them for what they were. This was being brought into the church. In 1009, the concept of holy water is invented. Listen, there's nothing a person can do to make water holy or not. But the Catholic Church had reasons for doing so. They needed certain water to be holy or not so that they could baptize in the way that they wanted to, which isn't the biblical means of baptism either. They invented things that helped them accomplish their agenda. That was happening as far back or as far forward as 1000 AD. In 1070, marriage is forbidden for priests. Once again, pastors. What a pastor should have been, marriage was forbidden. Now, if you've read scripture, you recognize that some of the qualifications for a pastor is being a good husband and being a good father. Now, it never says that you have to be married, but it certainly doesn't say the opposite. If anything, it's a prerequisite for you being effective as a pastor. If you can't pastor your family, if you can't lead your family, then how on earth are you going to lead many families? It's, it's almost like a litmus test. If someone is claiming to have spiritual authority, claiming to be a pastor, yet their, their house is a muck, their family is falling apart, then why on earth do they have the authority to continue pastoring? They can't even do this, 
the simple part. It's not simple <laughs> at all. But they can't do this part. Then how on earth are they going to do this part? So this very important aspect of humanity has been taken away from spiritual authority. Now you've got monks, you've got priests, you've got the Pope himself. None of them can get married. None of them can fulfill their physical desires and roles that God placed into them that ushers in physical abuse for generations to follow, even into the present day. Why does it surprise us when we hear that people in this group are committing some kind of abuse one way or another? It shouldn't surprise us. They've taken away the physical rights that God has given to us in marriage. Yeah, there's going to be some problems that follow that. When we think we can fix what God made, we bring in issues. 1190, the sale of indulgences was introduced. As the name implies, an indulgence was a prepayment for sin, something you wanted to indulge in. As far as the church was concerned, it didn't matter what it was as long as you paid. It could be lust, something just in your mind. It could be rape. It could be murder. It could be anything you want, and the church would not hold you accountable for it. Now, the government might. If they could find you, they might have a problem with you and throw you in jail. But God's not going to judge you because you paid me already. I am serious. This happened. It also just happened to coincide when they were building some of the most ornate buildings in all of human history that still stand to this day, cathedrals all across Europe. It also happens to co correlate with the Crusades, which took a lot of money to fund. When the church became a nation, it began to act like a nation, and it began to cut corners so that it could get money. This is an example of that. A terrifying time to live. Here's a description that summarizes the church of Thyatira pretty well. Wrong doctrine easily went unchecked since common people were unable to read and were taught that only priests could properly interpret Scripture. This left people not knowing that Catholic teachings were actually unbiblical. Without the Word of God to teach them the truth about God, about themselves, and about the world, people were fearful, superstitious, and completely dependent upon the priests and the church. By discouraging reading among the common people, the Roman Catholic Church greatly contributed to the regression of learning in all areas and even caused what we know as the Dark Ages. Much more could be said about this window of time, but we get the gist. There was a lot of false teaching that was coming in. There was no way for people to validate what the Pope was saying or what the church leaders were saying. Even if you could read, you were told by the priest, well, you're not a priest, so you don't, you don't know what God actually means when he says that. It took a millennium for the church to get out of this. And even then, it's still around today. The false teaching, the false doctrine that permeated this culture still exists today, all around us. And not just in this form, in many forms. Anytime we take man and put them above God, we've set ourselves up for failure. The error was so deep and so fundamentally flawed that it didn't just change the church. It made a new one, entirely. A totally different organization, a totally different organism than what Jesus had the apostles start. It didn't exist anymore. It did, but in a different way. The Roman Catholic Church had hijacked Christianity. The Catholic Church is so far removed from what the apostles started, it is fundamentally a different religion. If you look at it, it's a different religion. Just like when we look at what man did to create Mormonism, 
what man did to create the Jehovah's Witnesses, what man did to keep Judaism in place and intact, what man did to create Islam. All of those started with, a, with a, at least a seed of truth. That's where they started. They started in the same place. But because of the words of men, they branched off this way and they branched off that way. People began to listen to what people had to say more than what God had to say, and it led them astray, the Roman Catholic Church included. Think about how closely the Catholic Church resembles the Jews in theology, Judaism. Salvation by works, right? Throughout the entire Old Testament, we see salvation by works. The entire point was to prove to the Jews, you can't do it. It's impossible. You can sacrifice all day. You're going to sin again. It's impossible for you to earn your, way to earn your way to heaven. Yet, here comes the Catholic Church reintroducing the concept and teaching that you could. You can earn your way to heaven. You can be good enough to balance the scales. They reintroduced this form of thinking just like the Jews thought. The sacraments, of course, the Old Testament Jews had the Ten Commandments. Of course, they had the whole law, but that was named mainly for their, them as a nation. But spiritually, the Ten Commandments was their set standard, the Catholic Church added on top of that. They added things like uh, baptism, washing away sin, unbiblical on a number of grounds. The Mass, which means, once again, this idea of continual sacrifice. The Mass was where they basically were re-sacrificing Christ every time they sinned. Sounds a whole lot like what the Old Testament Jews were doing. Every time they sinned, they had to go to the priest and confess their sins and make a sacrifice. The church now was starting to teach, oh yeah, you got to come to me. you got to tell me all your dirt. Tell me everything that you did. Now, when you leave, you got to say five Hail Marys and go do this and, and add penance for what you've done. The Bible never once teaches that anywhere. Man taught that. They brought it back. The concept of purgatory is an interesting concept. came around the 1400s, but it actually mirrors the Old Testament concept of paradise just from a negative example rather than a positive example. Really interesting. Yet, here it is being reintroduced. It's almost as if the nation of Israel had been reincarnated into the church. The church had become nationalistic once again. Remember the Jews rejected Jesus because they thought Jesus was going to be their physical leader. He was going to be their king. They were going to conquer the world with the sword. That's all they wanted. When Jesus said, no, I'm, I'm ushering in a spiritual kingdom, a permanent kingdom, they said, no, I don't want that. They, as a group, rejected him entirely. That's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church did as well. They said, no, we have the opportunity to rule, and we would rather reject truth so that we can remain in power. That's what they did. Once again, my purpose today isn't to bash people who don't believe exactly like me. People in this room don't believe exactly like me, and that's okay. We don't have to agree in every single thing. But we do have to agree on what God has said. We have to point back to the truth. In the Catholic Church, they didn't have a Joseph Smith or a Muhammad. They had the Pope, which means that as soon as one passed on, another one came and will continue to do so, keeping them in darkness. Whereas 
in some of these other religions, they've been able to look back and say, wow, that guy really was off his rocker. I see what he did. I see the error that he brought in. They can look back and they can judge more effectively. But when that ruler is standing right in front of you, it's a lot harder to do that. And today, this church still struggles with that because of this. Lastly, let's talk about the consequences that would follow this spiritual adultery and false authority that was given here within the Catholic Church. Number, uh, verse 21. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts. I will give unto every one of you according to your works." Is it any surprise then that the adultery of the Roman Catholic Church ushered in the Dark Ages, a time that history looks back at as so bad they refer to it as dark? Even before Christ was it referred to as this, when things were much worse, so to speak. No, it was here. The height of the church is when the world was darkest? How does that make sense? The church is supposed to be the light but the church had become dark itself. Therefore, it was pushing that same darkness everywhere it went. The church of Thyatira was the longest age in church history. Did you hear that statement? Jesus said, I gave her space to repent, and she did not. The longest era in church history was Thyatira. God gave them space to repent, and he said, when you didn't, darkness would come. Think about all of the things that took place during this window of time. Natural disasters, man-made disasters, there's a bunch of those. The Crusades and, and the Black Death, the bubonic plague, and, and all of the things that were taking place. It was a dark window of time. And all the while, the Roman Catholic Church was the, the overarching leader, at least in Europe, which led into many other parts of the world. Verse 24, but I say unto you, unto the rest in Thyatira, notice that, the rest of you, as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. I believe that this is talking about the true remnant of believers, the real church that was hidden away because of the popularity or because of the, the massive organization that became known as the Roman Catholic Church. The true church was always in its shadows and half of the time being persecuted by the very church that it was supposed to be a part of. We see around 1100, the Waldensians were true worshipers of Christ. They managed to even translate the Bible into a number of common languages in their day, something the Roman Catholic Church had outlawed completely. They put people to death for doing this. They burned them at the stake for trying to put the Bible in a language that the people could read. They knew what the ramifications would be, so they didn't want it. 1100. People were dying for this cause. In 1300, the Lollards continued this true lineage of the church through the leadership of John Wycliffe. They were able to make rough translations even into English. Once again, something the Catholic Church did not want. They did not want us to be able to read and challenge their authority in what it was that they were saying. 
John Huss continued the movement of the real church into the 1400s, uh, what, in which part of the world is the modern Czech Republic. The Anabaptists would continue the movement in Holland, Switzerland, and Germany. We see more of that movement continue into Italy, almost into the 1500s. The true church had not been stamped out. It had not been removed. It had not been eliminated. It still survived. But the Catholic Church was a brutal persecutor of anyone who challenged their authority. Most people are pretty familiar with uh, the Spanish Inquisition. This was a, it was a Roman Catholic organization to stamp out dissidents, to remove people who disagreed with them, regardless of <laughs> their true biblical leanings. If they disagreed with the church, that's all that mattered. But the concept of Inquisition had been around for centuries and would continue for centuries more. The church was persecuting the church just as effectively as Nero and the emperors before him. Think about that. A spiritual leader was putting people to death because they were calling him out. Talk about false authority. That's what was happening. That's what was going on in the church of Thyatira. All of this would culminate in Germany with a man by the name of Martin Luther, who we'll be talking about much more next week, the Protestant Reformation, the end of the age of Thyatira, and the beginning of the age of Sardis, according to what we see in Scripture. But before we get there, Jesus has one final thing to say. Verse 26, And he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. I will give him the morning star, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There will be a reward for those who endure the falsehood of the day and help, to, help the true church to be able to endure. In comparison to the other churches, the church at Thyatira believed that salvation was earned by works rather than a gift through faith. If you've been keeping up with the graph that we've been working through, it's up on the screen for you. Once again, the church at Thyatira believed that salvation was earned by works rather than a gift through faith. They were deep into paganism and idolatry. Jesus told them to repent or suffer the consequences. Darkness would come if they did not bring the church back to where God intended it to be, and darkness came. For those who did repent, he would give them power over the nations and the morning star. It's interesting that Martin Luther is often referred to as the morning star of the Reformation, potentially playing off of this, what was taking place in this prophecy. Jesus told them, there'll be a reward for those of you who make it through, those of you who stay true to me, and don't listen to the words of men, but listen to the words of God. Yeah, there'll be a benefit. There'll be, there'll be a reward for those of you who do this. The era of the church was truly devastating during this window of time. It forever changed the world's viewpoint of what a Christian was. Today, people are still in confusion on what is the difference between a Catholic and a Christian. Aren't they the same thing? No, they're not. There's a reason we use different terms. We're not the same people. We're not the same religion. Now, does that mean that there are people in the Catholic Church who are saved? Yeah, there can be. There can be people in the Catholic Church who believe that Jesus is truly the Son of God, that he was buried, that he died, that he rose again, they've called upon his name. Yes. Now, they might be adding some completely unnecessary stuff on top of that. But if the basis of what they believe is true, then they're still believers according to Christ. 
Once again, we can disagree on some things. We can be totally wrong on some things, but that's one thing we can't be wrong on. We can still be a believer. But what we see taking place at this point in history is a very purposeful shift from what God said to what man said. Now, at this point, you might ask, okay, what's, what, what, what can I take away from this that's positive? What can I learn from this today? There's actually quite a few things we can learn, but I'm going to point out two. First of all, let's talk about the traditions of men, very briefly. The Roman Catholic Church put important people before the Bible. Important people, priests, fathers, the Pope, people who were dead, didn't matter. If they were important, they became more important than what God actually said. Some of it was intentional. We look at the other cults off of Christianity, such as the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. We look at their leaders. They were very purposeful in what they did. They were devious. They knew exactly what was going to happen when they introduced false doctrine into their church. They knew it was going to create a new religion, and they did so on purpose. I don't think that was necessarily the case in the Roman Catholic Church. I think that it was just such an organization that continued to overflow on top of itself that it happened over time. And that as authority was being shifted from God and onto man, they just listened to what the last guy in front of them said. And they just continued to listen to men. The traditions of men became more important than the words of God. What happens, regardless of doctrine or, or creed, past or present, if people start to receive the glory that rightfully belongs to God, they often have a really hard time getting rid of it. They like it. They want it. And they'll hold on to it as long as they can. We've seen this in the modern day as well. People were so convinced of a pastor's teaching that they were willing to do anything that he said. Some of them even to the point of taking their own lives. We've seen that. We've seen it in the news, even recently. That happens today, guys. That isn't just something from a thousand years ago. Today, we are just as far away today from making the same mistakes that they made. Just, just a, a few decisions. The moment that we start to lift up a person over God, over his word, is the moment that we have set on the same course. The traditions of men, listen, just because somebody said so doesn't mean that it was right. Just because somebody said so doesn't mean that it was wrong. What did God say? How does it apply to the world around us today? The traditions of men will lead you to death if they are left unchecked. Now, if the traditions of men were built upon the concepts of God's word and they continue to be built upon the concepts of God's word, then they have a place, sure. But I wouldn't call them the traditions of men. I would call it the teachings of God, because that's what it is. There's a difference. As soon as we allow the traditions of men to be what we blindly follow, then we are going down a very dark path very quickly. There is only one person that we follow blindly, and his name is Jesus Christ. It's not your pastor. It's not your dad. It's not some prominent figure that just because he said it, that means it's true. Only God holds that role in your life and in mine. And if he doesn't, that has to change. That has to change. He's the only one with the authority. The last perspective we'll talk about is the fact that most Catholics are not converts. They're born into it. It's just tradition. It's just part of the family. It's just a part of who they are. 
They didn't choose it. It chose them. I mean, they were literally brought to the, to the priest and baptized as a baby. They were claimed by the church rather than the other way around. That's what they were taught. If that were you, if you were in that position, then you recognize questioning that is very difficult. Going to your mom and dad and saying, I don't believe what you believe. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's true. Challenging them directly is very hard to do. And many of them don't. Instead, many of them, they recognize that what they believe is fake, it's false, it's wrong. They don't even have to go to the Bible to recognize that some of it's wrong. Just human logic shows them that is ridiculous. I can't believe that I say I believe this. But instead of challenging, they just walk away. They leave the faith entirely. They don't ask questions. They need help, but they don't seek it because they don't know where to go or they're afraid of what they're going to find. That's where we come in. That's where the church comes in. Once again, it's not, hey, I've got all the answers that you need. It's, hey, I know the person who has all the answers that you need. I can, I can show you in God's word why God said what he said. I can show you why this is not right. This isn't biblical. This isn't true. This isn't what God taught at all. This is the words of men because they wanted control over you and they were effective at doing so. I want to show you a God who doesn't need to control you and micromanage you. He wants you to choose him. That's a different concept than what most Catholics have ever been taught. They need to hear it. And it's our responsibility to give that message to them. These are people that are so close to the truth, but at the same time, they're so far away. They've been steeped in tradition that's been handed down for literal generations. Generation after generation after generation has just done what they've always done because that's just what we do. We're Catholics. Yeah, we go to Mass. Yeah, we, we go and talk to the priest every once in a while and we put money in the offering plate and we do all the things that we're supposed to do. Yeah, because that's how I get to heaven. I think I'm going to make it to heaven because I've, I've gone and I, I, I've, I've, I've confessed and I, I go to Mass and I, I do the Eucharist. I do all these things. Yeah, I hope I'll go to heaven. That's what they believe, guys. They believe this today. Still. And we can help them. We can show them the truth of God's word. I close with this. Most of us don't really know a lot about shepherding and sheep. We live in a desert, after all. I mean, we see them every once in a while, but they're not here for long. They're here just during the winter months, and then they skedaddle back up to where it's cool and they won't bake in the sun. But even still, we see them on the side of the road. We don't know anything about them. We don't know how they work. But in this day, there's a lot of, of imagery that Jesus uses with shepherding. And there's something that shepherds always do for their flocks. Shepherds always teach their sheep something very important, but something very basic that will keep them safe. Remember, sheep, they're known as pretty dumb animals. They're blind. I mean, they're not entirely blind, but they can't see very well. They're not exactly nimble. They can't run fast to get away from, from predators. The shepherd recognizes there's a lot of weaknesses that these sheep have. They can't run fast. If they stand too deep in the water, they'll just get swept right off and they'll just roll over and die. They have no, con they have no way to get out. They're, they're honestly helpless creatures. The shepherd knows this. So the shepherd prepares them for the dangers of life. 
with one simple thing. Jesus says it like this. My sheep hear my voice and they listen. My sheep hear my voice. The words that I have said, they hear my voice and they listen. A shepherd always teaches his flock to be able to listen and identify his voice. That's why shepherds often sing and just talk all the time. They want their sheep to constantly hear their voice so that no matter where they are, no matter what dangers are around them, they could be on the side of a cliff, they could be by a raging river, there could be a pack of wolves surrounding, there could be other shepherds calling their name. Did you hear that? There are other shepherds out there too that are calling for the sheep to listen to their voice, to follow their flock. Come, I've got something better. The grass is greener on my side. Come on. Today, there are other shepherds calling out loud and clear from everywhere. They can be from other religions. They can be from from uh, YouTube theologians. They can be anywhere. They're calling. But the question we have to ask ourselves today is, do I hear my shepherd's voice? Or am I too busy listening to all the other noise around me? What voice do I hear? If we truly listen to the words of our shepherd, to his voice, we're not going to find ourselves in some other flock We're not going to find ourselves over a cliff or swept away by a river. We're going to be right where the shepherd is. That is what they missed in the church of Thyatira. They didn't hear the, the voice of the shepherd. They got so far removed from the voice of the shepherd that they didn't even know what it sounded like. They didn't know the words that their shepherd had ever said. They didn't know. They only knew the words of another shepherd who was trying to keep them in their flock instead. Don't let that happen to you. It can happen today. What happened then can happen now. Listen to the voice of the shepherd. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They listen. They follow. Lord, we're thankful today for this passage. And how clearly... We want to thank you for joining us on the NLBC podcast today. We hope that God will allow this message to truly make a difference in your life. As you learn more about Him and as you study His Word, we pray that it will cause you to live out the gospel in a whole new way. Again, if you would like to connect with us, feel free to reach out by visiting our website at newlifecasagrande.com. If you are local to the Casa Grande area, then we would love to have you join us in person. We have services at 8.30 and 11 a.m. each Sunday morning with a host of other opportunities to develop a godly community to learn and to grow. We'll see you next week on the New Life Baptist Church podcast.